here you have um, these two companies have uh, overlaps virtually across the country on a local basis. Um, and in addition, you have DOJ alleging a national market effect. Um, so I'm, I'm highly skeptical that divestitures uh, are going to be um, a remedy in this case. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Legal Talk Network. This is Lawyer to Lawyer. Thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be with you from sunny Southern California. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from uh, Dismal, Massachusetts, uh, where I write a blog called Law Sites and also a blog called Media Law. Craig, I know you write a blog. Called May It Please the Court. And we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio, web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and law firms at suntrust.com slash law. And Firm Manager from LexisNexis at MyFirmManager.com slash LTN. Well, there was an announcement that shook the wireless communications industry on Wednesday, August 31st, 2011. The Justice Department sued to block AT&T's takeover of T-Mobile USA. That merger would have created the nation's largest mobile carrier with 130 million wireless subscribers. That's 43% of all wireless phone company subscriptions in the country, controlled by potentially one company. So right after reviewing uh, details of the uh, $39 billion deal, the Justice Department said that the acquisition would not be good for consumers or for competition. Uh, AT&T responded quickly by saying the company is confident that the merger is in the best interest of American consumers and the country. Well, there's been lots of reaction from both proponents and opponents. So let's get to our guests and get the conversation started. First up is Maurice Stuckey from the University of Tennessee College of Law. Professor Stuckey joined the faculty back in 2007 and brought 13 years of litigation experience as a trial attorney at the U.S. Department of Justice Antitrust Division, Special Assistant U.S. Attorney, and an associate at Sullivan and Cromwell. Professor Stuckey serves as a senior fellow to the American Antitrust Institute. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Maurice. Thank you. Thank you. Also joining us today is attorney Alan Gruens. Alan practices antitrust law and litigation at Brownstein Hyatt Farber Schreck in Washington, D.C. Before that, he spent more than a decade at the U.S. Department of Justice Antitrust Division. Uh, attorney Grunis currently serves as chair of the Antitrust Committee of the Bar Association of the District of Columbia. His firm represents Dish Network, uh, and, and attorney Grunis and, and, and attorney Stuckey have recently uh, co-authored an article entitled Antitrust Review of the AT&T T-Mobile Transaction, uh, which I believe is forthcoming in an ABA uh, communications, Federal Communications Law Journal. So uh, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Alan Grunis. Thank you. And our next guest is Evan Koblenz. He's a reporter for Law Technology News. Evan has been covering IT and telecom since 1998. He's a computer historian and prefers the term time-sharing instead of cloud computing. You can keep up with him via Twitter <laughs> at Koblenz, underline LTN. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Evan. Thank you. Glad to be here. 
Well, Maurice, let's get started with you. Can you give us some more details about the Justice Department's decision and where the Justice Department is going to be or why the Justice Department is going to be arguing against the merger? Yeah, uh, not a problem. This is a, I mean, this is really a, a, a landmark case in, in many different respects. It's, first, it's a landmark case because it's the first major challenge by the Justice Department after the financial crisis and the world of too big to fail. Secondly, it's the first major challenge after the 2010 merger guidelines went into effect. Third, it's a challenge where, the, where unlike prior merger challenges, most of them end up in a consent decree. I mean, less than 5% of all mergers are actually investigated. Even a fewer amount are subject to a second request and extensive scrutiny. And less than 1% on average are are challenged. And most of those challenges involve some consent decree. The company agrees to divest some of the assets. This is one of those rare cases where the DOJ has decided to enjoin the transaction and without really as part of a, a settlement um, process, that there is no consent decree um, located in, in this. And it's finally, it's, it's a landmark case because it really is going to force the court to look at what should be the appropriate standard that should be employed. And to what extent does the incipiency standard have any teeth left in it? And that's an important concept when thinking about this um, transaction. But I'm going to let um, Alan give his thoughts as well, given that, you know, that he, he's, um, his experience in this industry. Uh, thanks. From my standpoint, one of the key themes in the DOJ complaint um, is that, uh, as they state, vigorous competition is essential to ensuring continued innovation and maintaining low prices in uh, mobile wireless. Um, they distinguish what they call the big four, uh, which is AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, and Sprint, from the smaller regional competitors. Um, they note that the smaller competitors often lack a nationwide data network, nationally recognized brands, significant nationwide spectrum holdings, and timely access to the most popular handsets. Um, and it's pretty clear from the complaint that DOJ views T-Mobile as a disruptive force in the market, um, particularly on pricing. Um, and pricing, after all, is one of the central um, focuses of antitrust law. Uh, and DOJ sees T-Mobile as a uh, source of competitive pressure on the others. Well, Evan, let's bring you into the conversation. And, and uh, as you say, you, you've covered this industry for a long time. Uh, what's what's your perspective on the legal action to, against AT&T? I predict that the deal will go through, but I'm wondering, I mean, right now, Sprint technically one of the big four, but it's really two plus two. It's T-Mobile and Sprint are far behind AT&T and Verizon. So I'm wondering... If the deal happens, if AT&T and T-Mobile do successfully merge, then what's going to become a sprint? Are they going to become a smaller player, or are they going to themselves buy up somebody? Uh, Metro PCS would be ideal because they're also smaller and also on the CDMA network. Um, and I think, you know, at that point, we might really go back to having three equal players or three close players rather than two and then everyone else. And that will be a very different dynamic for customers of having three equal players than as opposed to just two. And of course, Sprint filed suit yesterday, uh, I believe it was, to block this merger. Uh, will, will that become consolidated with with the Justice Department action, or will that proceed along a separate track? Does anybody know the answer to that? 
It's Alan. My my guess is that um, as it has in past cases, um, the Department of Justice is going to uh, resist um, consolidating the two cases. Um, the DOJ sees itself as uh, representing a broader constituency of the public, consumers, competition, um, and not uh, representing a, a single um, entity. Um, I don't know how the judge is going to decide that, but um, uh, my guess is DOJ will resist. Um, there is one case that I'm aware of um, where a private merger challenge and a government um, merger challenge were consolidated, and that was in uh, the Northwest Arkansas newspaper case about um, maybe 15 years ago now. Um, but in that case, the private suit actually came first. How does the Justice Department go about picking what kind of companies to block from mergers? I mean, let's take a look even at Southern California. We have two electric companies here, Pacific Gas and Electric and Southern California Edison. You don't get a choice to buy from anybody else. So why is the government concerned about one big player when there are at least three or four other smaller ones in this industry? Uh, this is uh, Maurice. It's not a question of, 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 of relativity. I mean, there's not an issue that, you know, that some markets may not be, um, some markets may be highly concentrated already. Why doesn't the government challenge those monopolies in, in some markets versus um, blocking a merger? The Section 7 of the Clayton Act was designed to prevent monopolies from forming and to prevent concentration in its incipiency. I mean, it came about... Um, early in the, the Sherman Act history, and then it was amended uh, early in the rather in the, in the antitrust um, law history early in the early 1900s, and then after 1950, um, it was amended in, in 1950 because of the experience that the United States had had during World War II and seeing what fascism had in, in Europe and the, the concern about concentrated industries. So. The amendments in 1950 really sought to prevent that concentration in its incipiency. They want to prevent markets from becoming anti-competitive, from having this sort of exclusionary behavior and the like. And the antitrust laws were further then um, amended to provide then a notice provision under the Hart-Scott-Rodino Act so that the DOJ and the FTC would not have to then scramble after the merger was consummated to break it up. It requires then a pre-notification period. And it's that process where the DOJ then has to make a determination, is this the type of merger that may substantially lessen competition or tend to create a monopoly? And it's more of a screening function and a predictive function about whether this merger may down the road lead to sort of the anti-competitive effects that the antitrust laws seek to foreclose. Well, there, there's a, I guess, a, I don't know if this is the final version or still a draft of, of your article available uh, on SSRN. Uh, and, and Looking at the article that that, that you've that the two of you have written together, uh, I mean, you you say that this proposed acquisition is is presumptively anti-competitive. What do you, Alan? What do you mean by that? We're using the the legal terminology that um, a merger that re reaches a certain level of concentration is regarded as presumptively anti-competitive under the law, um, and that's the law that's going to be applied here. Um, the parties have an opportunity to to overcome that presumption, um, and the burden, of course, at all times 
rests with the government. Um, I guess l- let me let me add a little bit in in terms of speaking about how our article came about and uh, maybe um, answer a little bit more of your earlier question about why is why challenge this transaction. Um, Maurice and I work together um, at DOJ, and we've written a number of articles together. Um, the first matter we worked on together was the CBS Viacom merger, which got us thinking about the marketplace of ideas, and we decided to write an article about that, which came out about 10 years ago. Um, since then, we've continued to um, write on media from an antitrust standpoint. Um, when the AT&T T-Mobile merger was announced, I started doing some research on it um, from the publicly available sources. I said to myself, essentially, okay, if I was back at the antitrust division and asked to write a a memo uh, to start a preliminary investigation, what would I write? So I started down the list of things that a DOJ lawyer would look at. What's the candidate product market here? What's the geographic market or markets? Um, what are the levels of concentration? What are the barriers to entry? Um, what are the theories of competitive uh, harm? What do the merger guidelines have to say? Um, on the other side of the coin, what are the efficiency claims? Um, the FCC's um, annual mobile wireless competition reports have a lot of data. And I looked at earlier wireless mergers and how DOJ described the markets and effects in consent decrees. And I read the party's public interest statement, which was filed with the FCC, which had their arguments. Um, and then I wrote something up and sent it over to Maurice. Uh, this, by the way, was before my firm represented DISH. Well, as they go through this uh whole analysis of what's appropriate and what's not appropriate for AT&T and T-Mobile, what options are there besides, you know, there was a mention about perhaps they should just buy PCS. Um, What happens if they divest some of their customers and, you know, they have 133 million customers with this merger? What if they give, you know, a bunch of those off to or sell them off to Verizon or one of the other services? What are the the opportunities to try to make this work? I don't think that would work out for a couple of reasons. Um, one, there would be customer anarchy. I mean, customers pick their provider, and they tend to be pretty loyal. Um, it, it, I don't want to say who my provider is. They're about to be neutral. But if my provider called me and said the government says we, says we have to sell you to a competitor, I'd be very upset because I picked that provider for a certain reason. Um, but one of the things that hasn't brought up yet is when it comes to consolidation in the electrical, in the electricity industry, cable, even in airlines, I mean, regardless of whether – Regardless of which company provides your utility or which you know airline you take, you still get to the same city. You still watch the same channel or get the same electrical power in your house. Um, in the uh, wireless field, though, different phones are exclusive to different networks. I mean, look what happened with the iPhone and AT and T. You know, just having that phone maybe you know changed their their position a little, quite a bit. Um, so I think one of the things I don't think this is likely to actually happen, but one of the things I think the FCC could, or not sorry, the government could do is put rules in place that restrict or even eliminate exclusivity uh, regarding carriers and handsets. I think that would help possibly more than, than, than as opposed to just, you know, where customers are assigned. Because, you know, the merger can go a long way to preventing certain people from getting certain devices. Unlike electricity, no matter who you buy it from, it's still the same electricity. Let me jump in for just a second. Um, uh, just as Maurice and I uh, believed 
from our analysis that this merger was likely to be challenged and should be challenged. Um, we also uh, have a section at the end of our paper on uh, the question of settlement, and our conclusion is that this merger is essentially unfixable. Um, the standard remedies that the government uses um, short of blocking a merger um, include some sort of divestiture uh, and or some behavioral conditions. Um, what you were just talking about would be a behavioral condition, like a prohibition of um, exclusivity. Um, other behavioral conditions could be, for example, setting price caps on roaming uh, charges um, or on special access or things like that. Um, this is this is a horizontal merger, and um, traditionally the government has not um, endorsed behavioral remedies in horizontal mergers. Um, DOJ is really set up as a law enforcement agency. It's not set up as a regulator, um, and the if you look at the the large number of um, uh, filings in opposition um, in the FCC, you'll see that the the regulation that um, various um, parts of the wireless ecosystem are asking for uh, are all are, are massive and they're all different. Um, I think I think in addition to the fact that DOJ isn't set up to regulate um, companies in, on an ongoing basis, uh, this one just is not a good candidate. So, so then the question is, what about divestiture? Um, divestiture of spectrum, for example. Um, typically, the divestiture remedy is used by DOJ when you have a deal that has some small overlap. For example, you have uh, Two companies, one is operating in one area mostly, another is operating in another area mostly, but they have an overlap. And if there's a problem, you know, a geographic overlap, say, in Chicago, and if there's a problem, then one of the companies can sell its assets in Chicago um, to somebody else who will then be the competitor there. Here you have um, these two companies have uh, overlaps virtually across the country on a local basis. Um, and in addition, you have DOJ alleging a national market effect. Um, so I'm, I'm highly skeptical that divestitures uh, are going to be um, a remedy in this case. Um, my guess is, and Maurice's guess is, that uh, this, this matter is going to court and a judge is going to decide if the merger is uh, anti-competitive and violates the Clayton Act. It's not going to get settled. And your prediction is that the conclusion will be that it does and, and that the merger will be blocked. Is that is that correct? Is it fair to say? Or you haven't gotten that far? From the... Well, we, we only have access to the publicly available information. And right. obviously, and said, DOJ and the parties have access to a significant amount of non-public information. DOJ... Um, in its investigation process, um, will not only collect information from the parties, but will collect information from from other competitors, from suppliers, from customers. 
They'll often do that through civil investigative demands. They'll take depositions. Um, there's undoubtedly, um, in this case, uh, a large amount of data that is being looked at. Um, all of that DOJ has. Um, in the context of the litigation, the parties and the parties' counsel will obviously get access to much of that, um, although under a protective order. Um, and what's in that uh, confidential information is going to um, indicate how the case ultimately comes out. But based on the public record and looking at the uh, what DOJ indicates in its complaint, um, my my belief is that uh, DOJ is going to win. AT and T was divested back in the 1980s by Judge Harold Green in Washington D.C. in a federal lawsuit. Is this matter going to go be? Um well, I shouldn't even ask that question because I don't even know whether Judge Green is still alive or even in place. But when this gets handled, uh, what type of review is the old divestiture going to take? I mean, AT&T got rid of Veri- what ultimately became Verizon, and now we're facing the same kind of thing again. Uh, Judge Green um, died, um, and um, my understanding is um, when the 1996 Telecom Act was passed, one of the provisions in there essentially put an end to the old AT&T decree. So we're we're not in that era anymore. Right. It's important to remember that the current company we call AT&T is actually Bell South, um, or one of those you know one of those baby bells that just started buying other companies, and it's, you know, landline competition was very different than cellular competition. There's no long distance involved, for example. And, and this is uh, different from the AT&T case, because there was the government breaking up a monopoly because of the monopoly. It was the remedy to cure the anti-competitive behavior by AT&T. Here under Section 7, the court would seek to prevent to create a monopoly or a duopoly in this market. So it's not going to necessarily have the behavior, unless they accept the merger on the condition of some behavioral remedies, the court then would not have a day-to-day oversight function. It would be either to enjoin the transaction or not enjoin the transaction. We need to take a short break. Uh, stay with us, and we will be right back uh, in just a few moments to hear more about uh, AT&T and the Department of Justice uh, and possible court battle coming down the pike. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to introduce us to the world of cloud computing and how it can be beneficial to lawyers and law firms. Jack, we're hearing great things about cloud computing and its utility for law firms. Can you tell me why so many lawyers are excited about cloud computing? I think the most important thing about cloud computing from a lawyer's perspective is that it gives them the power and breadth of features that traditional desktop and server-based software uh, gives them without all of the IT overhead and inconvenience. So there's uh, all the benefits and none of the downsides of traditional desktop-based software, and they're able to focus on practicing law with a really solid cloud computing platform behind them. So I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the the excitement is they're now able to realize the the potential of IT without all of the headaches. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? 
Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Thanks for tuning into our program today. We want to let you know about something extraordinary happening in the legal industry. Right now, hundreds of independent attorneys just like yourself are working to bring a very special product to market. These attorneys are part of a development program at LexisNexis, and they are working under NDA on a brand new application that will change the way you run your practice. This solution, LexisNexis Firm Manager, is a web-based, highly secure application operating in SAS 70 Type 2 attested data centers. If you are interested in test driving LexisNexis Firm Manager at no charge, or to learn more, visit www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at LegalTalkNetwork.com. Lawyer to Lawyer is celebrating its sixth year here on Legal Talk Network. That's a lot of legal talk by our great hosts, attorneys Bob Ambrosi in Massachusetts and Craig Williams in California. Thanks, Craig and Bob, for the best podcast for legal professionals and the longest continually published legal podcast anywhere. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Uh, this is Bob Ambrogi, and uh, my co-host Jay Craig Williams and I are joined by Maurice E. Stuckey from the University of Tennessee College of Law, Attorney Alan Grunes from the firm Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, Shrek, and and by Evan Koblitz, a reporter for Law Technology News. Uh, and as, as I've been listening to, to the discussion here today, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of wondering... Uh, what what AT&T, AT&T is thinking or what its legal counsel are thinking, I guess. Uh, I, I'm wondering, Maurice, is, is it possible for you to kind of put yourself in the shoes of, of AT&T here or at least their, their legal department and, and imagine what their arguments are going to be at the Justice Department and, and why they think this is a case worth fighting, at least legally speaking? Yeah, I mean, well, they, they can have several strategies. One of them is that they could try to slow pace the uh, the trial and to work with the FCC on finding a suitable remedy and then use that remedy to go to court and say, look, we've satisfied the FCC, which has a far more deferential standard. 
given that we satisfy the FCC's concerns, we should satisfy then the, the, the DOJ's concerns. That's one, one option. Option two is they can then argue that the, they really have the, the markets wrongly defined, that in fact, the markets are much more local. And in the local markets, AT&T faces competition from many smaller players and that these smaller players would just jump at the chance of, of, of expanding their market share should AT&T and Verizon act anti-competitively. And then the third component they would argue is that consumers are going to likely benefit. And here they may say is that, look, if we're going to have the additional spectrum, if we're going to have the capacity to integrate T-Mobile and AT&T, look at all the great things that we can offer consumers and that is really our incentive then for um, merging. And the fact that Sprint is complaining is telling because they really would benefit if we acted anti-competitively by raising prices. So in all, in all, consumers would be better off by allowing us to have the spectrum so that we can invest and provide consumers better products and services. And then the final thing they would say is this is such a dynamic industry that we can't really afford to stand still that we need to continually invest and improve our products and resources. And therefore, we don't really have the incentive to exercise market power after the merger. And what's wrong with having a big company? I mean, you know, AT&T used to provide the best telephone service that we ever had. Now we've got nowhere near as good a service. Are we going to have the similar problem with wireless where we can't, you know, because we don't have service nationwide. It's not, we don't, have the capability to have good cell phone service everywhere isn't a bigger company really what we need yeah that's that's a i mean that's a fascinating policy question that's like one that Tim Wu addresses in his book the master switch and this was also came up during the the congressional hearings with at and t and in one sense it's it's a policy question is it better to have one large company like Ma Bell and a, almost a benevolent monopolist and that they could provide then the products and services that consumers want? Or is it better to have four competitors that don't have as much spectrum as one large competitor or two large competitors may have, but each of them are then, with their limited um, resources, are scrapping away to, to come up with better products and services, to make do with what they have, and then that drives innovation and the like. And those are two different viewpoints, and it's a policy issue. Which, which is better for, for consumers? Uh, I think if AT&T tried saying that their newfound monopoly is in the best interest of consumers, I would not take that very seriously from them. Um, during the Mobile era, yes, you know, you picked up the phone, it was only a dial phone, it worked. But there was also very little innovation in that field. People were being charged arbitrarily based on where the two parties were located. Uh, all the innovation came from outside the field. So I would say that would... Um, you know, that that that, that 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 kind of consolidation might be good short term. It might be good on the surface, but I think long term and deep down, it will be much more negative. I don't know about what you're thinking about innovation, but I remember AT and T and Bell Labs having fantastic innovation in the in the telephone system. So we don't have a a, a similar kind of Bell Labs now because there's not enough money to fund it. I think you have to also remember, though, um, that. The old AT&T was the company, as Tim Wu says in, in the master switch, that um, uh, invented the answer for answering machine and then suppressed it for years. Um, <laughs> and that 
the old AT&T was the company that resisted uh, any attempt to interconnect with its network. Um, and in terms of the the uh, the pace of innovation and quality, um, it, it maybe maybe it's not um, evident to us here today as much, but the breakup of the Bell system actually uh, was what allowed the internet as we know it to come into existence, and the amazing innovation that we've had in the, in the last decade or two probably would not have been possible if the old monopoly was still in place. I would absolutely agree with that. And I would say, that, you know, sure, sure. I mean, Bell Labs, well, 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 Bell Labs was always a pinnacle of innovation, but there's a big difference between innovation in the laboratory and what AT&T introduces as products to the public. Uh, gentlemen, we are just about out of time for the show this week. And before we conclude the program, we'd like to give each of you an opportunity to kind of share your closing thoughts and also let our listeners know how they can follow up with you if, they, if they'd if they like to do that. Uh, so uh, let me uh, invite Maurice to uh, to start us off. All right. Well, well first of all, I'd like to thank um, both of you for providing us this opportunity. I think this is going to, as I mentioned in the beginning, going to be a key case. And it's going to be a key case for the courts to say, how are we going to view um, these sort of mergers, mergers that are going to create a large share, basically a duopoly, and what sort of strand, standard are we going to apply, and how stringent are we going to put the, the government to the test? And it's going to involve very uh, interesting um, policy issues, particularly going forward like on some of the issues that we discussed on innovation and whether big is necessarily conducive to innovation or is innovation more likely if we have four firms as opposed to um, three. Uh, any comments on our paper that Alan and I wrote, we would love to hear. Um, Alan can give his email. My email is at mstuckey at utk.edu. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it, 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 Alan, your final thoughts? I have a, I have a thought about um, the judge and the trial in this case. Um, it's Judge uh, Ellen Siegel Huvel. Is that her? Yeah, Ellen, Ellen Huvel. Um, I think she's a very good judge to draw for an antitrust case. Um, I went back and looked at her uh, opinion in SunGuard Comdisco. That was a merger challenge about 10 years ago, and the government lost. Um, but the reason it lost was it could not prove the narrow product market it alleged. Um, there was failure of proof in that critical element. And the judge pointed out how the fact witnesses contradicted each other and sometimes themselves, how the customer evidence was small relative to the universe of customers and how there wasn't enough evidence to find it, for her to find it representative. Um, I, I think she's, uh, looking at that decision, I think she is great on the law and her analysis of facts is, is very methodical. It's exactly what you want in an antitrust judge. Uh, because you've got a gazillion facts and some very complicated economics. Um, I, I think both sides in this are likely to be pleased um, by the draw. Um, that is, of course, until she rules against one of them. <laughs> okay, and, and how might our listeners follow up with you if they'd like to do that? Sure, my uh, email is agrunas, G-R-U-N-E-S, at bhfs.com. Thanks. Thanks and, very much. And finally, finally Evan Koblenz. Yes, well, um, uh, I'm curious about some of the macro effects. I think everything from the 2012 presidential election to 
what lobbyists for Apple and Google have to say about it could, you know, could, could definitely be factors here. Um, I do predict the merger will happen. I, I don't think that's necessarily a good thing, though. Um, and I'm very interested in seeing what happens to the rest of the industry, you know, trying to react and shape themselves in response to that. Um, and, and our website is uh, lawtechnologynews.com and uh, Twitter on um, uh, Koblenz, K-O-B-L-E-N-T-Z underscore L-P-F. Well, gentlemen, thanks for being on the show today. And it kind of reminds me of uh, what a judge says, that they make a friend for uh, 10 minutes and an enemy for life after they make a ruling. Well, anyway, uh, remember for our listeners, you can get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to Select Legal Talk Network podcasts. You can go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. You can also find all Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes. We'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Well, and, and before we sign off, Craig, I want to uh, just mention that I this is uh, roughly our sixth year anniversary of doing this show this week. I, uh, I think we started on August 31st, 2005, and uh, we are somewhere at around 300 episodes or so. So congratulations, uh, and uh, look forward to another year doing this with you. Happy anniversary, Bob. <laughs> thanks. And thanks again to our guests. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.